have you endorsed anyone in the mayoral race? Yes, we did. We endorsed um, Brandon Johnson. Um, he is a former teacher and he, um, I, I have worked with him a lot throughout uh, the time that I have been in movement in Chicago. Um, I think um, he is going to be a great mayor. I met with him before uh, I endorsed him, of course, and there are things that are very important to me that we haven't been able to push for during this administration under Lori Lightfoot. For example, treatment of trauma is something that I want to see. I think that Chicago deserves this model and Brandon is committed to to fighting for it and, and making sure that that it is materialized. And um, so I I am very much in support of of his um, of his candidacy. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about what we do at chicagojustice.org. Off the top, there was our guest, 33rd Ward Alderperson, Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez, is our guest today for a very um, interesting, intriguing talk around both the election, she's up for re-election, and... Um, her, her pick for mayor, mayor candidate, which you heard off the top, and about her ordinance treatment, not trauma, that Lightfoot kind of buried, which is setting up crisis response in Chicago and getting the cops out of responding to mental health and drug calls that and calls about homeless and all kinds of things that don't need a officer with a gun and a badge and a uniform. Listening to this in the podcast, please hit subscribe. We'd really appreciate it. If you want to get involved on our work, cjpnation.org. We have dozens of volunteers and interns from all over the country working on research projects, doing our social media, all kinds of things. Right now, you can do that if you go to cjpnation.org and fill out a little form. Also, if you want to support our work, go, there's Patreon link in the show notes of the podcast or go to patreon.org and look up Chicago Justice Project. We are there. We'd really appreciate it. There's going to be uh, new content coming there at least every two weeks, both inside, um, you know, insider details about us. We have new litigation coming up in D.C., um, but not only that, will you get that, but we're going to start producing original content. Our first one is about defining what violent crime is, because somehow that over the last several years, that has become tricky or a question about what that is because of politics and kind of corruption. So, Sanchez, intriguing alder person, defeated machine back candidate Deb Mel from the incredibly, what I would call, in my opinion, the politically corrupt family tree of Dick Mel, whose other daughter is married to none other than Rod, former disgraced, imprisoned, and now pardoned, or uh, I think he got clemency, Rod Bogoyevich. Sanchez, as I said, this is recording this on February 1st is up for re-election later this month. You heard off the top about who she's endorsing for the mayor's race. It's a really intriguing conversation. Just a little note, because these are done remotely, we have two problems. Uh, we had the internet um, goblins get to us twice during the show, the recording. So you're gonna hear two little skips in this. I apologize for it, nothing else, nothing could be done. But I appreciate your patience for that. So I, with this, I'm going to leave the interview, leave you to the interview, and I will be back after. Alderwell and Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Okay, for our listeners who don't know much about the 33rd Ward, can you give us a two-minute description of your ward and um, that you are been elected to represent? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I represent the 33rd Ward, which includes the neighborhoods of Albany Park, Irving Park, and Avondale. Um, it is a very diverse place, particularly the neighborhoods of um, Albany Park, 
um, and some of Irving Park are still very um, highly immigrant neighborhoods. So Albany Park is a port of entry, so there is um, a lot of immigrants. There is a lot of um, a lot of mix, right? We have people from everywhere in the world, which means that you can also eat food from everywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, I, I came to live, live in Albany Park when I left Puerto Rico in 2009. And I can say I feel like um, it was a beautiful experience to not feel foreign, you know, because everybody here was coming from somewhere else. Um, so yeah, that those are the, the boundaries during the last remap. Um, the the map changed a little bit um, after the U.S. Census. Um, we redrew the the boundaries of all of the wards so that we could have um, equal distribution of population. Um, so now. The 33rd Ward has a lot more Albany Park and less Avondale. So Avondale um, went more into the 35th Ward, which already included Avondale and Logan Square. And now the 33rd Ward has more Albany Park, which um, I believe that that it is better for constituents and you know for our neighbors because now Albany Park only has two aldermen, it used to have three, um, and, and it's the same with, with Carlos in Avondale, yeah. Okay, so you came in, and for those that don't know, you beat Deb Mel in the Mel machine? I did, uh, I did how, do that. <laughs> how, how did you do that in 2019? Yeah, so it started in, in 2015. Um, it, it took us two cycles to be able to to accomplish that. In in 2015, um, a teacher from our local high school, Roseville High School, uh, he was a history teacher and he ran uh, against that Mel and he ran on a um, on a neighborhoods for the many platform on a you know a 99% platform. Um, and I decided to support him. And then there was a group of us in the community um, who are um, leftists and progressives. And we were excited about somebody finally challenging the, the Mel dynasty. Um, at that time, I was, um, I was a theater artist and mentor and director at a youth theater company in, in the community. And a lot of the young people that I was working with were uh, Team Megan's students. So I knew him because of his students, because we shared uh, students. So we, I supported him and we were 17 votes away from a runoff with Deb Mel, um, with no money and no training whatsoever in how to run an electoral mm -hmm. campaign. <laughs> But we were all organizers, right? Like we have been involved in so many different struggles, like you know, anti-war struggles, the the fight against death penalty. Um, we we had been organizing around education, so we, we all were experienced organizers, but not in electoral politics. So after that defeat, um, we only got more enthusiastic about doing the work because we knew that it was possible to win. And we spent the following four years organizing around housing, um, around immigrant rights and education. And we did a lot of canvassing around the community for rent control. We did uh, canvassing for a moratorium on charter schools. Both things we put as items on ballots in non-binding referendums. And that allowed us to connect with a lot of the people in the community that wanted to see something different um, and whose needs are not being met. And then come uh, 2018, I was asked by the same group of people that I have been organizing with uh, to run. I said no. <laughs> but at the end, I realized that if I didn't do it, um, there was nobody else that was stepping up to do it from our camp. So I ended up doing it and we won our, our race um, in 2019 by 13 votes. Um, that was a good, that's a good victory. <laughs> Anytime a Mel loses, it's good. <laughs> yeah. 
No, it, it it definitely was a really huge fight. We had half of the money that they spent on that race. Um, we were backed by by several unions. That is that's what you know propelled us uh, to be able to do all the work that goes into uh, an an electoral campaign. Um, I had to go to a runoff, um, so it was it was exhausting. At the end, we won by 13 votes, and on the day that that Mel called me to concede, I remember talking to her, hanging up the phone, and then crying for like 45 minutes because it had been so long <laughs> and so exhausting. And we finally got the seat, and now you know we we have been using the seat in a completely different way, and and I'm really hoping that. Um, that we are going to continue doing the work that we that we have done so far. Okay, your opponents in this race are, if I'm pronouncing their names right, are Sammy Martinez, um, who yeah. seems Iris Martinez backed, and Leif Shaban, if I pronounce those correct. Who's backing those? Yeah. Are those Mel backed people? Yeah, Sam, Sammy Martinez is definitely being uh, backed by Dick Mel. Dick Mel is actually out knocking on doors for Sammy, which is something that he didn't even do for his own daughter. So I am here like, wow, they really want this feedback. Um, he's also being backed by George Cardenas. Sammy Martinez yep. is the former chief of staff uh, for George Cardenas. Um, so this is, you know, this is a... A, a very much a machine back candidate. Um, Lace is um, a neighbor and he doesn't really have backing from the machine. Um, but he is a landlord. He owns, I believe, like around 19 properties across wow. Chicago. Um which is which is not uncommon, right? For people who have this kind of interest in real estate, to seek um, a seat that has so much power over zoning, right? Zoning yep. uh, is one of the biggest powers that aldermen have because of aldermanic prerogative, and um, I think it's very problematic when you have candidates that take money from this interest or represent this interest directly because they are these interests right yep. so that's 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 who both of my my opponents are have you endorsed anyone in the mayoral race yes we did we endorsed um brandon johnson um he is a former teacher and he um i i have worked with him a lot throughout uh, the time that I have been in movement in Chicago. Um, I think um, he is going to be a great mayor. I met with him before uh, I endorsed him, of course, and there are things that are very important to me that we haven't been able to push for during this administration under Lori Lightfoot. For example, treatment of trauma is something that I want to see. I think that Chicago deserves this model, and Brandon is committed to to fighting for it and and making sure that that it is materialized. And um, so I I am very much in support of of his um, of his candidacy. I think I lost it for a second. No problem. What was the motivation behind your treatment, not trauma ordinance? Oh yeah. Um, so treatment of trauma uh, was, I I wrote it and introduced it um, in 2020. Um, the idea was to create a mental health crisis response model similar to the CAHOOTS model in uh, Eugene, Oregon, a model that has been in operation for over 30 years. Um, and the idea was to take police out of mental health crisis response because police is not really um, trained or apt to be able to deal with mental health emergencies. And we know that people who are suffering from mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed by police. Um, and that increases um, depending on race uh, with black men in experiencing mental health crisis being the most vulnerable. Um, 
so we have a really big problem in in Chicago in terms of how we are looking at safety, how we are um, responding to the concerns of our communities um, of not being safe, not feeling safe, right? Um, after I introduced the 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 crisis response and care council order, which was uh, is referred to uh, by by movement and and in general popularly as treatment not trauma. Um, I continued to do research and we have visited several different cities that have really good uh, mental health crisis response programs. So I went to Colorado uh, to Denver and I looked at their STAR program. I met with uh, the people who run it and the people who created it. I went to Portland and looked at their street response. I have been in communication with Albuquerque, um, who they, they have a really great publicly run program. And we started thinking about what it would look like in Chicago to have a, a holistic approach to um, not only mental health, but like public health um, emergencies and public health issues that right now the only tool that we have for is police. Um, so treatment of trauma now is composed of several different uh, components. The first one is expanding the non-police mental health crisis response, which is a tiny, tiny pilot that we were able to get the mayor to incorporate in the 2021 budget. Um, the what we have right now is not enough. It is not adequate. Um, I would say um, that one of the main problems that we have with that model is that when responders come um, to to wherever the the emergency is happening, they don't really have a place to transport people. So we end up with the same problem that we have had all the time, which is police station or ER, and neither of those places are adequate for somebody that is experiencing a mental health emergency. Um, so because of that, one of the things that I learned from the Denver model is that we should have walk-in crisis centers. And our proposal with treatment of trauma is to use three out of the five remaining public mental health clinics that we have, the, the community mental health centers run by the city, and make three of those 24-hour uh, walking crisis centers, because then we would have a place where we can take people who are experiencing a crisis and we could de-escalate, we could feed them, we could figure out what are the next steps that we need to follow, and you would not need to take anybody to a, to a, to a police station or an ER. And one of the reasons why this is so important, and I don't know um, how, how many uh, people are aware of this, but um, the Irene Chavez case has been a really big driving force for us um, to to take this very seriously and 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 look at it as an as an emergency, something that we need. Um, Irene Chavez was a queer Afro Latina veteran. Um, she uh, was experiencing PTSD. Um, one night she went out with her friends. Um, she was experiencing a mental health um, crisis. She got into an argument with the bouncer. The police was called. She was put in a police car. She was transported to a police station. She con consistently told police, I need to see my therapist. I need to talk to my therapist. Get me my therapist. Um, she was transported to the station. She, put it, she was put in a holding room um, that had no visibility to the inside. And when the police came back to check on her, she had taken her own life. And that is just one example of why we need new tools and we need uh, to make sure that we're creating the structures of care that our communities need um, when, when this kind of situation happens. She was not a threat to anybody. She was having a mental health crisis and she deserved to, to, to receive care, but, but we didn't have the, the structures to be able to provide that and that's why she's not here right now. Um, the third part of this uh, model 
is about community support teams. And the community support teams are teams that would not go through 911, teams that are constantly checking on the people that are most likely to go into crisis in different communities uh, because they are in a specific context. And this means people who uh, probably use drugs, um, people who can be intoxicated often, um, uh, homeless people, um, the, all, all of these um, groups can benefit from close monitoring in order to be able to address needs, right? And we are not doing that. So we wait until there's an emergency and then the police will come and there might be a confrontation and um, something that could have been easily dealt with and handled with the proper tools uh, might escalate and end up in harm. And we don't want that anymore. So we believe that we can have a comprehensive model that can actually allow us to take some of the uh, public health slash mental health work out of the hands of police. This is work that they are not trained to do. This is work they don't want to do. Um, and this is work that puts everybody at risk um, and then put it into the hands of the people who actually know how to do this work uh, so that we can have healthier communities. Why do you think so many people, including those in power in, in Chicago, um, have such a hard time moving away from policing as the solution for all our ills, you know, Mayor Lightfoot and uh, Superintendent Brown and the superintendents before and the mayors before. I've heard Daly say it, I heard Brown say it, Lightfoot, we can't arrest our way out of the problem. We can't arrest our way, we can't police our way out. And Brown has said that a dozen times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, McCarthy before, Eddie Johnson before him, and then McCarthy, and you go down the list and they all say it. But no one changes anything. Yeah. Right. And the thing that, that bugs me, um, I had Ebony. Morgan and Tim Black from Cahoots on our show when we first started in 2020. And what I don't understand is, well, I guess I'm going to ask you this question. Why, if, what kind of resistance have you gotten from the mayor and those in power, the police to this? And why do you think you're getting that? Because, you know, I've heard Mayor Lightfoot say, oh, well, we need research. We need to try. And it's like, Mayor, Cahoots has been going since 1988 in Eugene, Oregon. Other cities and, have taken up. Why do we need this long research when we know so many things already? And, and we also have the research of all of the rest of the cities that are doing this, you know. And, and Portland Street Response, for example, they started doing mental health crisis response. And they, they immediately, when they saw the results in the first few months, they immediately scaled up. And they have continued to scale up every couple of months because it works. In Portland, I actually sat down with the chief of police in Portland, and he was loving the program. He was like, this is great. There are so many things that we should not be dealing with. And this program actually helps us um, not have to respond to, to those things that we're not trained for. It is not good for us either. So um, I, I think that it is, I think that it is just this, tough on crime kind of messaging, you know, um, that a lot of politicians are still attached to uh, because it is always the default response. And they are scared that new messaging that they don't really know well is not going to get them the votes. The thing is that people actually like these ideas. We just had a we just had the treatment, not trauma question about um, deploying um, mental health crisis teams and uh, reopening the public mental health centers in Chicago, we put it in the ballot in November in three different wards. In my ward, it got uh, around 93% of the vote. Um, and in the other two wards, it got 96 and 98% of the vote. It was the sixth ward and the 20th ward. So it was an average of 97% of the vote. Because because people actually want to see this because what we have been doing doesn't work. Um, but I think it's also how government has 
decided not to take part on direct services and care for communities. We have um, we have gotten into a space of we need to punish, right? And the care aspect of it has been completely defunded. So our structures of care are virtually non-existent, right? The Department of Family Support Services, for example, is mostly a bank. We don't really have a lot of jobs um, in the Department of Family and Support Services that are actually government, well-paid government jobs that make sure that we are taking care of people. We delegate that to nonprofits um, with workers who are exhausted, overworked. <laughs> and then if you look at the Department of Health in the city of Chicago, the, the Department of Health, um, their budget is only about 7% um funded by our corporate fund the rest are grants if you end up with a president that decides that they don't want to do this work they don't want to fund this work we we don't have a, a department of public health which is incredibly dangerous but in the meantime the budget of the chicago police department has continued to increase year after year after year and i know that you know this and i'm preaching to the choir but i, <laughs> I do think it's important for people to to be able to understand how underfunded our structures of care are compared to the structures that are designed to punish, right? And, and, and for incarceration. And that is a problem that we have that kind of disparity. Right, and for my audience that didn't listen to the last uh, episode of our podcast, we had Jonathan Silverstein, who used to work in Deborah Silverstein's office, uh, who's an older person. He is now some, he's in, uh, uh, he's in uh, Evanston government. And there was an article about some report he had written uh, by A.D. Quake in the Trib talking about how the actual money we spend on the, the CPD is actually not 1.9 something billion. It's actually 3.4. Yes. Because the city hides the pension payments and like the maintenance for all the um, buildings and the maintenance for the cars into the city's general fine you know general finance fund so the so the right? general the general fund will tell you how much we are actually spending on cpd and then there are different agencies like assets for example will take care of buildings so the so the the money that they are spending taking care of maintenance of cpd stations for example that's not going to be under the cpd budget right um Yes, there is. I read that report and I was um, I was outraged because because it is really incredible that even though it is the best funded agency in in the whole city government, um, there are still people that are using that. Oh, you want to defund them. You don't oh, yeah. want to be safe, mm -hmm. you know, and it is a it is a a fear mongering kind of um kind of narrative right where anybody that is saying we need more care structures we need to fund those care structures is seen as a threat to to safety because all we need is police right and that that has a problem in the past, but I think that we're moving away from it. In the last election uh, here in my ward, Delia Ramirez ran against uh, Gil Villegas for Illinois 3rd District, Congressional 3rd District, and so did a lot of other people like Anthony um, Joel Quesada that ran for commissioner of the 8th District uh, for Cook County. And the campaigns against them were all about defund. They called Delia defund Delia. And they mm -hmm. were saying that Anthony Joel Quesada is the leader of the defund movement in Chicago. They even photoshopped one of his shirts to say that. And they lost miserably. Like Delia and Anthony won with incredible margins in this area. Um, so I think that that those fear-mongering tactics are not really working as well anymore, but it's still a challenge, right? Because as long as you don't have concrete solutions um, that you are presenting to people, 
the only thing that people are going to be able to envision is what they have in front of them. And all we have is police because it's all we have funded. Right. And it's just, it's mind boggling. And I don't understand. I mean, I, I'm happy to hear you had that meeting with the superintendent or the chief of police that you had here, especially with the union. They're just, it's an, the regime running the union is just extremist alt-right. And they're like, well, and then they, but they sound off like we need to take care of cops and we need to make sure health and all this stuff. It's like, you know, you build up a, you build up a crisis response and you take this, what, 20, 30, 40% of the calls, maybe more away from the police department. I don't know. I think that's improving the job uh, conditions for officers who don't have to put up with things they're not trained to deal with. Right. Me, their lives would just be better if they helped the city build up that response. Yeah, no, I I think so too, and I and we we have we have the way to do it, right? Um, the Chicago Police Department carries over vacancies every year, and those are positions that are funded but are not used. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we have been saying: give me some of those vacancies, give me two hundred of those vacancies, and let's do a pilot and let's see if it works. Give me, you're not using them and you're not going to be able to fill them this year or the next one. Give us 200 positions that are well paid already because they're baked into the budget. And let's try to see if we can take some of that work and, and create a structure of actual care that can help us address those safety concerns in a completely different way. No, no way. Like they, it's like, it's like you are um, cursing at them, you know. Oh and, yeah, no, hundred percent. It is. It's hard when when you can't do that, but it is also another reason why we need to have more progressives in council that can fight for these things um, with with us together. Because currently, and and you asked me about the mayor and how much the mayor has fought back. She fought back. She fought this back the whole time. She only, the, Lori Lightfoot was only okay with creating the non-police response pilot because she was short two votes from her budget. So she agreed to a line that was, that didn't even have an amount, right? Like they just baked it last minute into the budget and said, we will also create a non-police response team and that was it that's all they wrote in the budget there was no budget item there was no money promised um so from the beginning when i introduced the the treatment not trauma council order i i got in touch with her and i told her i would love to be able to work with you on this but she was not interested she wanted to do a correspondent model that still sends police because it's like we cannot it, it is to me what it means is that government is like really scared of people, you know? Yeah. I, we shouldn't be scared of people who are so vulnerable. We don't have to be, we need to take care of them, right? Right, um, well, let's be honest. This isn't something people just conjured up out of thin air, Lori. Right. This has been going on, because I've had people bring this up to me, responding to my podcast, and. Um, I've been on the news talking this a little bit. This has been ongoing in Eugene, Oregon since 1988. They've never had a responder seriously hurt. Right. Come on. Plus, all these other cities are starting it up. We know. And, um, yeah, it just, it, that idea drives me nuts. I saw the co-responder. I'm like, no, it's the uniform and the gun and the presence of law enforcement that is the problem there. And let me tell you, when we, at first, when we talked about this, and I would love to go into the archive in city council because this, all of these hearings have been um, recorded, they told us that police was not going to be in uniform for the corresponder model, that they were not going to wear uniforms so that, you know, it, was, it wasn't threatening for people. That went out the window immediately. They are in full uniform and armed and, and, you know, regardless, I do not, I want, I definitely want teams that are not police based. Yeah, I, what I was saying is I don't understand, I, I really don't understand Lori's hesitance here. It's been going on in Oregon for 30 years. It's been going on in all these cities. We know it. I'm. How much do you think this is 
is Lori just super pro law enforcement or is she just commit worrying about getting reelected or do you think she's I, just going to spend the money? I, I think that she has had a lot of trouble getting support from police. Um, so she has to position herself as somebody that is unconditional um, with law enforcement and and she's doing just that that I mean she is she's playing the the political game that you know I, she also probably believes that Paul Vallas is her main contender um, besides um, the rest of the contenders and she's trying to make sure that she plays to that audience as well so um, but it's been like this you know, it, it's been like this for the whole time that I have been in, in office. Um, I don't really understand fully why, but at some point I stopped asking myself why, because um, because I have other stuff to do. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, it, so, so the conclusion for us is that we are going to have to continue fighting for this that it is already in the mainstream that people are talking about it, that mayoral candidates are talking about it, um, that it was super well received in, in during the election um, in every ward where we put it on the ballot as a non-binding referendum. Um, and that it's just a matter of time for it to happen. I will work with whoever becomes mayor. I will. I will work with them, but I will demand that this happens. And now we have a lot of public support. So, you know, if they don't do it, they're just going to have to respond to, to our neighbors and constituents. Okay, I have a few more questions. What, um, <laughs> Alderman Talafario, we released a report, God, I think in 2021, that looked at like, for 20 years, 20, was it 20 years? I think it was 20 years of, of um, agenda items for the public safe, well, police and fire, and then the public safety committee that he now chairs. Mm -hmm. And basically all they were doing is giving away equipment to, you know, foreign countries. And we showed that very little of their time was actually spent on any kind of oversight, meaningful oversight. And he said to the media on video, on camera, our job is not our the city council and my committee is we're not an oversight committee. And I I, um, I was just like, what the hell is your why does your committee exist then if you're not oversight? You're a legislative <laughs> body represented by the people that elect you. You have departments of the city that are underneath you. You happen to be public safety, which is police and fire. If you're not oversight, what are you? Like what do you what do you say to that? <laughs> So um, I think that when when people say that we are not oversight, maybe what they mean is that we don't investigate um, and that there are other agencies that investigate, like, for example, the inspector, the office of the inspector general. But our responsibility is to bring forward any findings from the office of the inspector general, discuss the the reports and the findings um, from their office and then take action based on the recommendations that the inspector general's office uh, provides. We don't really do that. Um, and it's because of the way that um, city council has been wired at this point. I believe that the city of Chicago is the only mayor city in the United States that does not have a constitution, right? We don't have a government constitution. So we essentially work um, by tradition. Um, and the tradition in city council is that we have had, we, we actually have a strong council, right? Like we can make our own rules and we can, we are um, an independent body, but it has not worked like that because the culture that has been created in city council is that um, aldermen come in and they essentially make a pact with the mayor and they go with whatever the mayor wants. Um, and then that means that our power is severely reduced. And historically, that has been an exchange of having the mayor as an ally to be able to get things for your community, right? That's how it worked on their daily. That's how it worked on the ram 
And I don't think that Lori Lightfoot has made any difference. <laughs> she she ran on bringing in the light and transparency and fighting corruption. But the reality is that she came in to be and 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 practice the same uh, behaviors uh, in terms of of relationship with counsel that her predecessors had. Um, so fundamentally, the idea that the mayor appoints chairs for committees is absolutely bonkers. Yep. <laughs> why is she appointing chairs? And why is the council allowing her to do that? Well, because there's not enough of us in there that can fight that, right? Um, she continues to have that power. We would need to elect people in council that are looking for um, a, a strong council, right, that can actually legislate. And during the time that she has been in office, there have been several moments where she has lost, you know, because she is also not great at building relationships um, and keeping them. So at times, the council has voted, you know, against things. Like she tried to appoint um, Kappelman, um not long ago to the committee on education and she lost the vote on the floor people people would not put up with that so i think that there is an opportunity to move away from that so that we can actually have that oversight that you're talking about um and that we can act as um you know with good government practices like for example taking on the reports i don't know if you were um paying attention this week matt martin who is the um, vice chair, current acting chair of the Committee on Ethics, he brought in the the inspector general to discuss um, the the quarterly report. And that's something that hasn't been done in a very long time because we because we don't do that, especially if it's something that the mayor is not going to like. Yep. So, you know, legislation is sent to the Committee on Rules, legislation is stalled. Um, you will be told that you're going to get a hearing, then you don't get a hearing or you get a subject matter hearing, but they don't really vote on it when you try to file a rule, a rule 41 so that the, the item can, can be discharged on the floor of city council. Then they will take some action, maybe we refer it to committee so that you cannot actually have the vote. So there's a lot of parliamentary um, procedural rules that keep you from being able to legislate and it is all in the interest of protecting the mayor and and that needs to change and i mean we we have been trying to change that over our time in, in city council but there's not enough of us yet so hopefully at some point we will have enough of us to be able to fight back and we tried to pass a reform to the police board in 2009 carruthers ike carruthers was going to pass it in a, a, a part of it in early 2010, and he goes to federal prison for corruption. That killed it, right? Mm -hmm. And um, Mr. Beal, who talks about all these things, he had the power, he was head of the committee, he could have passed it, no deal. He didn't pass it. Rom did, because he was all about transparency, supposedly, so we put pressure on him, but it passed in a meeting, this is what people don't understand about the city council, it passed in a meeting in the corporation council's office with the uh, deputy, uh, Deputy Public Safety, Deputy Mayor for Public Safety was in there, the Corporation Council, someone from Intergovernmental Affairs. We haggle on the language, we finish it, and this little uh, pipsqueak from Intergovernmental Affairs is like, all right, it'll pass public safety on Wednesday, and then it's going to pass the City Council on the next Wednesday. Congratulations. And I looked around, I go, there's no alderman in this room. And Felicia Davis at the time, who's Deputy Mayor for Public Safety, is like, that's how it's done in that room so we show up we gear up for the meeting in public state uh at that time police and fire we gear up for it the, the aclu public defender's office we all gear up for we all go to testify there are like eight people it's in the big chamber there's like eight members of the committee there which is like half the committee and they're staring mm -hmm. at us like death they got the order this thing is passing and we're oh, wasting yeah. our time giving our speeches about why it should pass i'm the mm -hmm. last one to testify I testify, I take two steps away from where I was sitting and it passed like like five seconds, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh my mm -hmm. God, like that's how things get passed. These people, I don't think anyone that voted that they had any idea what was in the ordinance and they had never read it. They got a call you from know, the office to pass it, they passed it. 
whenever the mayor wants to pass something, it, you know, it, it usually passes without problem. Um, when I introduced the bodily autonomy sanctuary ordinance um, to create a sanctuary for, for abortion care um, and, and gender affirming care, I introduced that, then I called the mayor's team. They said that they were interested because it was convenient for the mayor, it was done immediately. It was done immediately, but because she wanted it, right? And she wanted to put her name on it. I introduced that. I worked with all of the advocacy organizations and we got it done. She wanted the credit for it. So of course she's gonna pass it. She made sure that it passed immediately. I don't think that I have ever, mm -hmm. ever passed something so quick in city council, particularly being somebody that hasn't had a good relationship with the mayor. So if she wants to pass something, she will, she will pass it. It is a matter of will. And we have had a lot of issues trying to pass things that are basic, you know, things that are basic. But then, but then they will take credit for it. <laughs> Even if you have to fight them to death. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what they <laughs> They will go, right? oh, and our administration has done X, Y, and C. And you're like, yeah, we, we had to fight you. We had to fight yeah. you. It's very much like the Republicans who who went the campaign on the benefits of Build Back Better for their communities. Like, look right. what I brought in, but they voted against it. I mean, right, you can't. Exactly. I mean, when you yeah. get there, there isn't too much of a difference at times. Okay, last yeah. two quick mm -hmm. questions. What grade do you give Mayor Lightfoot on police reform in her first term? Oh, damn. Uh, you know, I'm a former <laughs> teacher. Um, and I hated grading. I hated it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, based on where we are standing right now, I would say I would give her a D minus. <laughs> right, there's some is... honesty. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, we have the Anjanette Young ordinance that is, yep. you know, dying in there because we won't like have a meeting to pass it these are important things we have an oath keeper in the force that they refuse to fire even when the inspector general stepped in and said this is insane you all cannot have a member of of, of a right-wing white supremacist group in the police force this goes against the, the idea that you could have an oath keeper, somebody that has admitted to being a member of the organization in the police force, when that is exactly what the consent decree was created for because of racist practices in policing in Chicago. Actually, you know what? It's an F. Like at this point. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Dear minus. Dear minus is too generous right now. And I know that they have tried to do certain things to comply with certain aspects of the consent decree, but a lot of it is um, in Spanish, we say pintura y capota, like um, it's all, um, I don't know how you say that in English. Win like window pa dressing? Paint and, yeah, it's window dressing. We use, we use car examples instead mm -hmm. of, <laughs> um, so it's like, you know, painting, painting a car to make it look new. Yep. Um, in the outside. And yes, I, I don't think that there has been any meaningful steps taken um, in order to, to, to comply with the consent decree in a meaningful way. Um, firing, because they, you know, yeah, firing, exactly. the head of, firing the head of the consent decree exactly. office instead exactly. of giving him the officers he's needed. That's a, that's mm -hmm. a, that's an F right there. Yeah, no, it, it is, it is pretty incredible. The, the, the the lack of urgency um that there has been um so yeah it it's sad we i'm really hoping that we can make way more uh progress in the next term we can only hope maybe lori lightfoot will f go back and read the clips from when she was campaigning and find i don't her. think she's gonna do that i highly doubt it <laughs> Okay. Aldo and Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Once again, I'd like to thank 33rd Ward Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez for joining us today. It was a really amazing conversation.
it is clear from that conversation and just what's going on in Chicago that Mayor Lightfoot is slow, slow walking crisis response and really doesn't want to and really doesn't have really any long-term intention of removing police from responding to 911 calls. This is just not in her, this is not her stick. She has no desire to do it. She'll play, she'll give a political speech or some comments to the media espousing that rhetoric, but all she's doing is exploiting it. That's all she's doing. Much like if you compare her past work history, which wasn't really progressive at all. She worked for Daly and Rahm, never really much of a critic to them till it became politically expedient for her. And she used it, that rhetoric, and she exploited it during the campaign, and she won for mayor, and then she, then she governed, as all Democrats do in Chicago and Illinois for the most part, especially Chicago, she governed, like, at best, a moderate Republican, right? Almost no financial changes come to the city that would differentiate her from Rahm or Daley, who were conservative Republicans, or moderate at best, right? She's not a progressive. She's done very little different than Rahm has done, and she's doing everything she can to keep her job and doesn't care about anything. And I'm, um, if you do subscribe to the Patreon later this week, early next week, we're going to post our first on our videos. We're starting a series kind of explaining data and terms in the criminal justice system and why they sh some of this shouldn't be that hard. It is, and our first one's going to be about defining what violent crime is because they, not daily, Rom tried to change that definition in Illinois, succeeded a little bit, and Lori Lightfoot, even though she criticized everything Rom did and believed in and touched and everything, is tried it also, and so was her police superintendent. It's pretty sad. And when you do that, you're not, no progressive's going to do that. It just isn't a thing. One would think we could settle on definitions, but much like the administrations and the campaigns and the rhetoric out of Donald Trump, we're getting it here in the form of trying to reclassify what is violent so they can incarcerate people longer. But Lori's a Black progressive. She should be against incarceration when it's not necessary. Not Lori. She's very, very, very pro lock every single person you possibly can up. That's her. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Next week, we, we feature an interview with Chicago's Inspector General Deb, Deb Kirby. Wow, that was an old, that's an old name. That is not her. It's Deborah Witzberg, um, who was formerly the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General. She's been on the show many times. We are talking about the white supremacist proud boy cop and why they should or should not have fired him. There's also, it turns out, a, um, a admitted oath keeper cop that they also didn't discipline because that's how useless and lame and ridiculous the police accountability system is and Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Superintendent David Brown are. So we're going to be talking about that. So I will see you next week. One real quick no, if you have people you want us to interview on the show or topics you want covered or topics you want covered on the Patreon videos, please let us know. Drop us, uh, hit any of our social media. We're really active on Twitter and now we're getting back up on social gram, uh, Instagram this week. Um, hit us there or hit us at info at chicagojustice.org and we'll uh, try to take it up for you. Thank you so much.